Hello and welcome back to the Hidden Gems Movie Podcast. My name is Sam. I am joined by my co-host, co-worker, co-movie soulmate, co-podcaster, Steve. How are you? I'm doing fine. I, I, I'm, oh I'm, I'm happier than than a Texas than a Texas Longhorn. So. How, how's that? How is that for a Southern accent? How is that for a Texas accent? Because I know you have a problem with phony Texas accents. I have a phony with. <laughs> I have a problem with all your jokes that are topical or related to the topic of our podcast. And you would think they're that terrible. After, they're you would terrible. think that after a year of not doing this, they would have gone away, but they're back. You were hoping they'd shrivel up. I think you waited two episodes to bring I did. it back. I, I did. I didn't want to even bring it up because I was afraid it might come back. But now, do it's you come know back. that joke was off the top of my head? Can you believe it? Yes, I can. A hundred percent. That joke seemed like it had no planning. Okay, so it was Steve's idea this week to do Paul Newman movies, hidden gems by Paul Newman. The reason that that's the topic, if you guys heard last week, is I believe Steve said he had never seen The Hustler, which is my favorite movie of all time. I'm open about that. So I just wanted to basically do a podcast that revolved around hearing what Steve thought about The Hustler, but then Steve thought it would be a good idea. Why don't we just do Paul Newman movies? I think before we get in to Paul Newman movies, let's talk about Paul Newman for a second. Where does Paul Newman, where's his place in the history of American actors? He's, you know, relatively recently deceased, right? Hmm. And if we're talking about cat, how do I put it this way? What generation is he in? Right, he's not the Brando generation, so to speak, or is he? I think Brando, wouldn't you think, is maybe a, a, a smidgen earlier than Newman? Yeah, Brando and Montgomery Cliff, they they came on like '49. I think that was the year the Men came out and made right. them both stars. Uh, maybe maybe Cliff was a few years younger. Like what's Newman's 48. what's Newman's class? Because he's older than Redford, right? So what's his class? I would put him with Brando, okay, and Montgomery Cliff. Okay. Is it Cliff or Clift? I think I have no idea. I think it's Cliff. Yeah. I, I would put them on that, that, that uh, Lee Strasberg, even if they didn't go to Lee Strasberg, mm-hmm. I don't know. But the, the Lee Strasberg generation, that, that, first, that first group that challenged good diction acting. Okay. <laughs> you know? Okay. So let me hit you up with this, Steve. In the top 10 American actors ever, is he on the list? And if so, where is he? I, I, think, he's, I, I think you could say he is. Okay. Yeah, I think he has to be on the list. He he has given so much, so many great performances. I, I want to bring up uh, something. Yeah, I want to posit that after The Godfather, I think Paul Newman, Paul Newman's body of work is better than Brando's. Without question, I I don't even think that's a question. Yeah. I think I think that's obvious. I think we could probably find a lot of you know. I think uh, I think um, Clint Howard's. Uh, real oh, is probably better. I think Clint Howard's real is probably better uh, than Marlon Brando's. We have an audience today. Did he re- correct us on on an, Cliff? An old buddy. Uh, yes, it is Clift with it's a Clift. T. Yes, I well. didn't know that. And uh, uh. <laughs> well, you know, who cares? <laughs> Thank you, Brett Carlson. We much appreciate it. All right. So um, here's here's what I'm going to say about Newman because I thought about this. I think Newman is maybe the most likable American actor ever to be an extremely good actor. Does this make sense? Yes, it does. So what I mean is that he, we, we think of guys like Brando yeah. and De Niro and Pacino, right? And they have this darkness about them. They don't mm. necessarily scream, hey, come up and ask if I can get your autograph. Or mm. You don't think of these as like warm men, but you do think of them as like highly trained, highly immersive thespians. But 
I think Newman, if he's underrated, and I don't know if he's underrated. I don't want to actually, I don't go around talking to people in the year 2023 about Paul Newman, right? (laughs) But if he's underrated, then I would actually say it's probably because he's so likable versus other likable actors like Clooney and Pitt and maybe Redford, who I think their reputation is exactly where what it deserves to be. No one, no one maybe thinks of them as incredible, you know, Joaquin Phoenix, Daniel Day-Lewis style actors, yeah. but they are talented and they do make good choices and they are smart. And I think that, you know, they pick well within their range, but I actually think that Newman falls much more into the Pacino Brando intensity of acting than he does the Pitt Clooney style. But you just—he doesn't necessarily scream it. Like I, I think that you'd actually have to really think hard about him to be like, you know what, this this guy is a real thespian and a character actor. He's not always playing Newman, and I think that's why he was able to maintain a great career. After the age of 50, yeah. you know, uh, he started abandoning the likableness, which a lot of actors made a center of their career, like Redford. He was so protective, you know, of his career. But if well, you what, look like What some, later movies is he really not likable in? What, who? Newman. You said he abandoned the likableness, but where did he really abandon he it? He wasn't trying to win people over with, for example, The Verdict. Okay, but he did. He's, he he root you, you root for him. Yeah. All right. But this is a guy who shows up drunk. Uh, Pauline Kale asked of the verdict, "Would you hire this man as your lawyer?" You know, clearly he got them more money than they asked for. It's funny. Yeah, I just watched. Would, I just you, watched the verdict. You would have to be insane to do so. You would have to be insane to hire this guy. Um, and and I, I do have problems with that movie, but he lets everything hang out. You should have you no know? problems with that movie. That movie's a masterpiece. I just watched it. That movie's fantastic, but we're not here to litigate uh, right, the verdict. Right. Um, um, so, so we, we, we did we did a Newman movie. Nobody's fool, right? Nobody's that was, fool. Which but is he's likable. Wonderful. But movie. he's likable. To be fair, there is Robert. He, he is there is Robert De Niro in This Boy's Life, unlikable, uh-huh. and then there's what you're talking about, uh-huh. and they are two different things. Like whenever people talk about Robert De Niro, I always like to talk about This Boy's Life, which is like a performance nobody would talk about because it's so ugly. It's one of the ugliest performances I've ever seen of an abusive, like, stepfather. And nowhere in it is he even trying to redeem the character. Like, a lot of times actors say, oh, I have to understand my character and sort of get in their head and think that nothing they do is wrong. As was the opposite with De Niro in this. I mean, he's just plain ugly. Ugly in a way that is hard to look at. So my point is, right, I don't think Paul Newman entirely abandons likability he's if anything he's kind of like a scamp in those movies especially nobody's fool nobody's fool he like he like he like hits a cop with his car like you know like in an act of like communal justice like i think we're rooting for him but to be fair he he didn't cash in on his likableness to get himself through that movie when he recalls his 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 father sending his mother across the room it's it's so frighteningly intimate you know Uh, it's it's so I really uh, I believe that the the terror of the memory with him. I can only think phenomenal. of one other American actor whose acting chops are definitely underrated. I don't know if Newman's are underrated, but I suspect they are. Mm-hmm. But the reason his would be underrated underrated are for entirely different reasons. But that would be Tom Cruise. Those these are the only two people I can think of who are serious, intense actors who, for very different reasons, maybe don't have that reputation. 
cruises being mostly self-inflicted, but the work is still the work and he mm. did it and was excellent in those, you know, the first half of his career where he right. was intense and excellent. Yeah. A cruise completely abandoned anything yeah. interesting and, and just stopped be, uh, being ambitious. Which K- is really Nick Cage is kind of like that too. I mean, the guy was a seriously talented actor before mm. he was a nutcase. <laughs> or maybe he was a nutcase the whole time, but before He's he embraced it. He's still willing to be a nutcase, though. He, play, yeah. he plays a, 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 you know, a kind of a, a demented... He plays a demented Nick Cage in the, right. the unbearable weight of talent, I think it's called. So back to Newman. Okay, yeah. second question. Did anyone ever do it better? And when I say do it better, I just mean the whole thing. The generalized handle fame, handle the business, handle his personal life. Oh, you know what? I can't say he did. Ooh, this is mean. Uh-oh. I'm about to say something mean. I don't say want it. I don't I want to be mean. Do. I'm going to say something. Didn't he have a son overdose? His Tragically, son yes. One of his Tragically, sons, yes. Uh, but that's yeah. that's not an indicator of someone who did it all perfectly. No, yeah. Uh, and I'm not blaming all parents for but because mm-hmm. he was in Hollywood, right. and he was rich and famous, you have to somewhat take that into account versus like, some guy you know whose son you know just horribly got into drugs and there was nothing the father could do about it. I'm not going to pretend and say, well, I bet Paul Newman's fame and career had nothing to do with this. Who knows? Yeah, I mean, if it and it was a if, first if son, a wasn't player. it too from a that, first that marriage? I don't remember. Um, I don't think it was his wife's. Who, what was from Joanne Woodward? I don't think not, it was Joanne Woodward's uh, I son. Think you're right. yeah. But actually, we got a guy here who might be able to find out for us <laughs> if he's willing to what fact check. What Brett, a guy! Awesome. We're going to take advantage. A of researcher him. for, for We're, working for free, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen. Although he is staying at your house, so maybe it's room and board. <laughs> okay, he he um he he actually got his son a part in one of his movies. The so only did, movie so did Michael Douglas the, before his son went to jail. <laughs> <laughs> the only movie Paul Newman ever said he did just for the money. Which one was that? The racing movie? The Towering Inferno. Oh, Towering Inferno. So, <laughs> and his son appears briefly in that movie. He did another disaster movie for Irwin Allen. It was, it was just by contract. One thing I like about Newman, too, is I love, if you guys listen to this podcast, you know I love auto racing. And basically, right. in the second half of Newman's career, even though he took acting seriously and chose good projects, his first love was racing. Or a kid called his first love, his main love, his main interest in the second half of his career was racing. And he was pretty good. And he actually... um. He actually won the Trans Am Championship. He he um he was so good actually. There's a documentary about him just on his racing career. Is that right? Yeah. yeah the I point is, know. Paul Newman did it pretty well. Oh, what's we've the we've fact a, here? Uh... Brett's got a fact for us about the son. <laughs> what are we learning, Steve? Um, the name of the first wife. The name of his first wife. Uh, so it is the first wife. Yeah. The first wife's son. Yeah, so... I think I, you know, I missed it, but... That's not necessarily um, implying he no. did it all perfectly. But, you know, you, you can't hold it against him either. I mean, no, it's not like something he but did... But if we're was... saying, is a man the role model right. for all actors like to, on how to handle life? Well, he yeah. comes pretty close because... He you comes know, close, but there's this huge thing right there. He, even now, you can see his face in the grocery stores. Like, I'm not apparently... trying to smear one of my favorite men who ever lived. I just, it was just one of these things where, ah, if that wasn't there. That one little That one thing, awful yeah. thing. Then here's a guy who just, like, killed it on every level. Well, wouldn't you feel awful if, if, if somebody was just had a total, totally perfect life? Would it even be fair? Come on. Yeah. Would it be fair? <laughs> if it was Paul Newman, sure. All right. <laughs> All right, so we'll, we'll talk more about Paul Newman. Let's get into the first movie, my favorite movie, The Hustler. All right, uh, Steve, here's what the facts on The Hustler first. The Hustler um, was released in September uh, 23rd, 1961. Mm-hmm. 
It runs two hours and 14 minutes. Long. It is. It's a pretty long movie, you know. Uh, I think it had a budget of like two or two and a half million dollars, which I think back then was not small. It's like the size of a small country. Yeah, yeah. It was released by 20th Century Fox. It was co-written and directed by Robert Rosen. Now, Robert Rosen directed um, All the King's Men. Oh, I did not know that. You know, I had forgotten that myself. We're talking about the remake, right? No. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) (laughs) The one in, uh, I think, 1949. Yeah. And he got stiff for Best Director. He, he, didn't get, he didn't win a Best Screenplay or Best Director, which he probably should have, because he was really... That, that was a pretty intense movie. So it's based on, you know, the story of Huey Long. Yep. Um, real fascinating movie. He also did Body and Soul, the classic boxing movie of John Garfield. Uh, the movie was nominated for nine Oscars, and it got, got some Oscar love for Best Art Direction and Cinematography, Black and White. Are you surprised by either one of those? Well, I'll tell you this. Our second movie also got nominated in this very strange category that shouldn't exist, which is cinematography black and white. <laughs> what a stupid idea. It was just like, oh, how can we you know, get these color pictures against these old black and white talkies? Like, this started like in the early 40s, and it, and it separated for... Basically, until the mid '60s, it's all artistry. It it's you know, a choice yeah. is a choice, and yeah. you know, if you want to go black and white, you're still doing cinematography. There's no reason to be in a separate category. But I Both get why they did it. Won the Oscar for best cinematography. The second one by the great um, Wong Hao, uh, a Chinese American. He was born in China. China came over here. He was a phenomenal. We can talk about him later. Uh, the cinematographer of this guy w- was a German guy. I, I, I don't. I'm not even gonna try shoot his name he was a vision he was a special effects man on metropolis mm. in the silent era for crying out hey loud. you know what I, that movie looks good in its own weird way yeah. that movie looks good that movie's crazy yeah i, I know you gotta see metropolis i have seen never metropolis seen, no i mean like uh, i'm sorry our, our fans uh, if you sorry. haven't seen metropolis <laughs> if you want to see mad genius that's mad genius yeah you know yeah. It, it's incredible uh, not only for nine oscars didn't didn't get to, uh, other than those two technical awards didn't didn't show any love and I, and I think that's uh, that's too bad. Uh, Sixty one they were giving everything to West Side Story which kind of sucked. I mean, yeah. <laughs> compared to, well, comparatively speaking, a lot of great songs but the acting's terrible and uh, any other stats? Oh um, yeah, it was edited by the great Dee Dee Allen. Now Dee Dee Allen revolutionized editing with Bonnie and Clyde. Mm-hmm. Did, and she did a lot of uh, Sidney Lumet's movies, you know, like Dog Day Afternoon. Yeah. I mean, she, she was fantastic. Anyway, um, yeah, that's about it. Okay, so let me explain a little bit before I get into the plot of why The Hustler is my favorite movie. Okay, for starters, it's a sports movie. I love sports <laughs> movies. Secondly, it's a seedy sports movies. And I love, I love anything that takes place like in a seedy environment. Uh-huh. Three... The dialogue is poetry and the movie's poetry. The, you think the movie starts off one way and you think you're going to be in this sort of like almost fun, kind of carefree, but kind of serious movie about this scamp. And then it turns into like a tragic love story. So like the real writing is there. Ford's got Paul Newman. And is this Paul Newman's debut role or like close to it? Or is this just the movie that made him famous? Oh, he, he'd been very famous. He'd been famous 50s, before yeah. then? Okay, yeah. good to know. Lastly... It's got my man, uh, George C. Scott, who this is my favorite George C. Scott performance ever. Let me talk about the plot of the movie real quick, just to summarize. Um, 
He got this pool player. His name's Fast Eddie Felson. He's a hustler. He usually makes his money by hustling people at pool, which means just pretending to not be good, getting the guy, you know, the mark to put some money on the line, and then shows how good he is. That's just the start of the movie. It's just him playing a, a hustle with his, his sort of his guy who helps him do the hustles but is not a pool player. But then very quickly after that first scene, he goes to this very serious pool hall where he's not hustling at all. And in fact, his goal is to find the greatest pool player in the country, Minnesota Fats, played by Jackie Gleason, in just an all-time incredible like performance from a TV actor, right? Just like a guy, you know, he's an, he's an icon for one role, which is... um. What's his name? Ralph Cramden? Ralph Cramden, yeah. Ralph Cramden. But here he is playing this totally different role based on a real dude named Minnesota Fats. So Fassity Felson comes to this big pool hall, and he's looking for Minnesota Fats. And Minnesota Fats is there. And Minnesota Fats kind of eyes him because, you know, I've heard of you. You know, I, I know you've been looking for me. And long story short, they played this, like, what was it like? Must have been like 12 to 18 hours of pool, of like marathon pool. They play from sunup to sundown. And over the course of it, in the beginning, Fassity Felson is just on a roll. He, he's actually kicking Minnesota Fats' ass. And as he's on a roll, as he's going, he's getting progressively and progressively drunker and more unhinged. Because for him, the money on the line is not what's important. It's all his ego. It's all just about asserting his, his place atop the mountaintop of seedy underworld pool. But as he's doing this, he's getting drunker and drunker. And they take a midpoint break. And in this midpoint break, which is extremely pivotal, Minnesota Fats is getting his ass kicked, but he goes to the bathroom, he cleans himself up, he sort of recenters his mind, he comes back out, and he takes uh, Fast Eddie for everything he's worth. Um, and basically after that, you know, it's, it's over, Fast Eddie's lost everything, and he's starting what from looks like ground zero, like he's lost what appears to be like a year's worth of savings. And his partner leaves him, and he's sort of kicking around a bus stop diner where he meets this woman played by Piper... Lori. Piper Lori, yeah. thank you, from um, The Exorcist. And uh, No, not The Exorcist. Yeah, she's... Carrie. A- Carrie. Carrie, excuse me. Thank Man, it's nice having a fact checker here. <laughs> I'm telling you. Um, from Carrie Man, those- and Twin Peaks. She has a small but good role in Twin Peaks. Um, and... Uh, and they, you know, they spark up this romantic relationship, which is partly based on their mutual alcoholism quite frankly this this movie's kind of also about two alcoholics is sort of this this tragic love affair that they're involved in it almost a mutually self-destructive love affair where they just stay inside her apartment and drink all day meanwhile fast eddie meets this guy named bert bert is a poker player bert happens to be he's kind of like almost like if there was a gambling mafia but that wasn't the mafia Right, he's not he's not a don. He he's not he's not actually a gangster, but he's a bank. He's a bank and he bankrolls poker players, pool players. He's actually um Minnesota Fats's bankroll. He's the guy putting up the money for Minnesota Fats. He meets Fast Eddie and he kind of becomes how would you put it, Steve? What does he become to Fast Eddie besides a bank? Well, I would say the devil on his shoulder as opposed uh, his shoulder devil. But He's not really interested in converting no. Eddie. If you listen to to the Piper Laurie character, he's interested in destroying. That's right. But I'm not sure that she sees clearly his motives. Okay, okay. So, I think there's some some conflict there. So 
basically the idea is that Bert is somehow leading Fast Eddie down the wrong path. But the mm. truth is, Fast Eddie was like a never, dark muse. Yeah, dark muse. but Fast Eddie was never on the right path. And if anything, Bert is a very disciplined, controlled guy. He only drinks milk, which is you know obviously the sign of a psychopath. <laughs> and I know you drink milk, Steve. So I'm just All saying. All the time. Yeah. Now, now Bert will drink when he's not working. He, right. he will drink alcohol at parties, right. but he will only drink milk while he's working. I think the main thing, Bert. So one thing you can't knock Eddie for is having passion for life. Even in the beginning, right? If anything, it's doing him in a little bit. But he's got passion for life. Um, he has a vitality to him that speaks something to the soul, if you will, like to who he is. Bert is the opposite. Bert sees nothing but the money. Bert doesn't see any individual as an individual. They are just an instrument for making money. He doesn't they, see the beauty of his play. Yeah. Of his no. pool playing. He doesn't see the beauty in anything. Yeah. He doesn't see the beauty in human interaction. He doesn't see... He doesn't see... I mean, I, I hate using the word soul because I'm an atheist, but he doesn't see the soul. He doesn't mm -hmm. see the soul in man. He only sees the ends. To him... Everything is about the ends. There is no process. There is no journey. There is no experience. There is either you win or you lose. And if you lose, you're a loser and you're useless. And in many ways, not he doesn't actually try to destroy Eddie. The person he's actually trying to destroy is, what's Eddie's girlfriend's name? Bowed names. Who does Piper Laurie play? What's her name? You know what? Uh, we're going to have to go to Brett on that. Yeah, this is great. Either <laughs> Sarah, way, Sarah. Sarah. Yeah. But the point is, in my opinion, he's not trying to destroy Eddie. He's trying to destroy Sarah because Sarah is basically the link to something human in Eddie, to who Eddie is. And, and Bert sort of sees that if he destroys Sarah, he can just have this money-making machine on his hands who has no soul, has no life, has no vigor. And, you know, I guess the point is, if you're going to have some sort of passion for life, you're also more likely to make mistakes, right? You're less likely to be careful. And Bert doesn't want that in Eddie. All Bert wants is a cold and calculated pool player who never takes risks, who never, um, who never tries to climb the mountain that they don't think they can climb. This is kind of the point. Eddie's whole thing is about achieving the unachievable. He wants to beat Minnesota Fats, not for the money, but because of the accomplishment. And Bert doesn't want this ever out of Eddie because now Eddie's using Bert's money. So I know that's kind of a long summary, but I think it also, it is getting something into the character of this guy, Bert, because he's a complicated character and he's not a, he's not a typical villain. In fact, he's kind of likable. He, um, he's not a typical villain and I, I don't know if they meant to do it or not, but I think uh, Sarah is wrong about some of the summations of Bert that she, she she rips into him. And she's supposed to be the author's view of how awful he is. And hmm. she has very explicit dialogue, which I'm not a, a huge fan of, where he where she trashes um, uh, uh, Bert. You're talking about the speech in the hotel room before before Eddie goes to play, what is it, nine ball? Yeah, but uh, there might be other... Oh, actually, no, he, it's when he's playing nine ball, isn't it? And she comes down drunk. What is the exact moment that she gives the long speech about Bert? I, well, there, there's one where um, she trashes him to Eddie. Now, that's when he's in the basement playing, mm -hmm. um, I think it's Murray Hamilton, that great actor, for the mayor of Jaws. He's, he's oh, also is that in this. very effeminate... Was it New Orleans? Uh, yes, I, I think something like that. He's got a very... It's not something... What, uh, Louisville. You're another. We we need a fact checker on to get him on the phone on every one. <laughs> so it's what. Louisville. So this guy, you know, 
it, it kind of goes back to the whole thing about Bert not wanting Eddie to do anything that seems at all like a risk. They're playing um, pool, but it's a different kind of game, I guess. Billiards, billiards. without pockets. It doesn't have pockets. Right. And Bert really doesn't want Eddie to play this, right? Because it's Bert's money and Eddie just gets a share of it. And this guy is an expert. And Eddie is basically saying, I got to play him. I can win. Please let me play Bert. He's begging Bert. He's actually begging Bert to let him play. And it's such a pathetic um, display. And Sarah is talking about, please don't beg him, Eddie. Just don't beg him. Yeah, he he, he loses a lot of money. Yeah. He loses his own bankroll. Yeah. And he begs George C. Scott. And right. this is too much for Sarah to take. So what is the dialogue from her you don't like? She she uh, she concludes that, you know... He, Pretty pretty quickly, in my opinion, that um, he's he's dead inside. Okay, yeah. I, I that what, what what did she say? She said, um, "Hey, everybody gets paid, right?" Mm-hmm. And she says, "No, um, you get paid today and tomorrow." Yeah. Okay, and and he and he has a great comeback. He has a perfect comeback. He said, "Nobody's forcing anybody to sell it." <laughs> yeah, but I I get you know. She sees this guy as a wedge between, yeah. and he is. They each she's see not each other as wedges. Wrong. By yes. the way, she's not entirely yeah. wrong. Yeah, this guy has does not have Eddie's yeah. best uh, interests in mind. No. Okay, but I can't say that they don't converge a little bit because what he does is he helps get back, get Eddie back to a rematch with Fats Domino. By the way, I hate to correct you on this and yeah. I didn't know this. I thought like you that it was that the Fats um the Minnesota Fats was based on a real person. Is it not? Well, there's a guy who there's says a guy he is. who says he's Minnesota Fats. <laughs> yeah. He took it from this movie. Well, yeah, I I'm thought sure it was the other way around. That. I thought it was the other way around. I think it's obviously I think he'll go to hit if he hasn't already gone to his grave, Probably I think has. he'll say they took it from Especially him. Especially if it's really fast. You know, it's it. pool. It's full. You know what I mean? It's pool. It's like, a hustle. It's a hustle. If you can make them think yeah. that you're better than you are, well, you're doing it wrong, aren't you? Yeah. So what, what was he thinking? The fact <laughs> we're even talking about this guy mean he won. That's true. You know what I mean? So, so good for him. So he, yeah. yeah. So, so there's, there's a couple of different parts of this movie. There's the yeah. pool part. Yep. And there's an almost completely segregated part where, where, you, where you're talking about, where it's alcoholics feeding off each other yep um self-destructive people with the codependence uh, mm-hmm. uh syndrome that she has that sarah has nothing but contempt for she mm-hmm. loves eddie yeah but she knows if this is the only life they have it's twisted it's perverted which she says know? yes and she calls herself a pervert at one point and yeah. we're gonna have to discuss about whether or not we want to do spoilers I this am, is going to be tricky. This is going to be I'm tricky. I'm pro spoiler in this situation because uh-huh. this movie is over 40 years old. But we want to get we want to get people to watch it. <laughs> I know, but I think where it's all right. Listen, guys, you've heard enough of the hustler at this point. If you if you really don't want to know what happens, stop. Watch the movie. Come back because uh, we have to spoil it. And look, the movie's actually like 60 years old, over 60 years old. So yes, so you know, at this point, we're going to spoil it. Okay. Um, but let's let me let me wind out for a second. Because I didn't actually ask you. I always ask you this when it's a movie I really like. Steve, did you like the movie? What would you think of The Hustler? You know, yeah. Uh, it, it's impossible not to like it. It, it grabs you. The very first scene is very cunning. It kind of lures you into thinking, this is uh, this is almost going to be a... Uh, uh, you know, kind of a, a lighthearted a hustle heist, mo- heist yeah. movie. You think you know, you're a con man. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. The, yeah, in the, the first 10 minutes, it did everything that The Sting wanted to do throughout its entire run. Yeah. But then we get this obsessive, and then it turns completely. Uh, 
it starts exploring Eddie's obsession that 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 knocks him off the track. Yeah, it's a beauty. It's a it's a it's a thing of beauty watching um, him play pool, but it's also a thing of beauty watching the joy in in Paul Newman's acting. Yeah, he 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 just he just lights up with admiration when he sees Jackie Gleason dance around there, large form that he is, yep. but dancing elegantly around that pool table, and then he gets to take the stage. There's that that scene is a beauty. Let me it's ask you a question. Beauty. Do you think the movie drags in between the loss to Minnesota Fats and the meeting of Bert? It's basically all the scenes when Newman and Lori are in their apartment, in you know, her apartment. It can't help but, okay? Right. It, it can't help but. Uh, Piper Lori created this incredible, uh, I, think it was her, uh, I think it was her first role, if I'm not mistaken, or one mm-hmm. of her first roles. She, she, she um, creates this incredible character. The likes of which I'm not see, I'm not sure was seen much by American movie audiences, and the the writer decided to keep her in. Normally, this kind of character in the last act gets kind of pushed to the side, and then mm-hmm. she comes back out. Yeah. No, this movie becomes almost as much about Sarah as Eddie. Yep. Which is way is revolutionary you say um that you don't get to see this type of character often remember we've made this joke before on this podcast you know what she is <laughs> she's a shelly winters type she is she's yeah. shelly winters type attractive, attractive but not beautiful just, right dark but pathetic yes right there, i mean that was the whole shelly winters model it was this pathetic creature you know what I mean? Kind of this kid tragedy waiting for a man to happen to her. Yeah, know? exactly. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, so, so basically what I'll say about that, that, that section of time in between the loss to fats and the meeting of Bert and then the road trip, it's necessary for everything to have an impact later. Yeah. If you don't have that key time between Sarah and Eddie, then, then, there is, then, then what happens later with Sarah has no impact. Do you, you agree with that? Absolutely. Yeah, they're, they're essential. In fact, if, if you don't have that, then she seems like a clinging yeah. uh, you know, uh, uh, albatross around his neck. I guess You there, see how yeah. valuable Sarah is to Eddie. I guess the point is you can't sort of show the reality of the sort of the stay-at-home drunk without showing the reality of the stay-at-home drunk, yeah. which means mm-hmm. it's not going to be exactly that entertaining. It's just going to be kind of two bored people drinking during the day, right? Because... I, I think that if you did it any other way, it would be hacky, right? If you showed them losing their money at a casino or something <laughs> stupid like that to reinforce the self-destructive behavior. But instead, they do it very wisely. They're just sort of indoors spending her money on booze. It's not even her money. It is the money of a man she's sleeping with who I think is married and just, like, sends her money. Is that the... Well, that's what she tells Paul yeah, Newman. Right. It turns out it's a lie. Yeah, She's really right. making it. Uh, that's uh, right. Her father. That's right. And the way she puts it is so dark. It really sticks with you. It said, uh, he wanted me out of his life, yeah. and my monthly check is how he bought his way out. Now, I mean, your heart breaks for this woman. Yeah. And she seems like a woman who basically had almost no hope in life, right? Mm-hmm. Meets this guy, thinks... Sees, don't get me wrong, sees a, a self-destructive person in him, but she also sees hope in the idea that they can fix each other. And mm-hmm. is when she realizes that they can't, and now we're going to get to spoiler territory. Is that okay? Do you, think, do you think it's time for spoiler territory? I think so. Okay, mm-hmm. so Bert, and this is the question everybody asks, right? Why does Bert do it? After Sarah begs Eddie not to take Bert's money um, to finish playing this game of billiards with this effete 
uh, where did they say it was from? Louisiana? Yeah. Louisville, Kentucky. Louisville, Kentucky. Very rich guy. Yeah. Loves right. to dabble in ruining right. people's lives. Right. Uh, you know. Right. And, and, mm. and after, you know, she calls out Burt for what he is, and eventually Newman makes all the money back for himself and Burt, but he doesn't seem like he's won anything. He's only lost because in order... Imagine, I mean, really, at the end of the day, it's not... Um, it is not natural for man to have a master. Mm-hmm. And what you're seeing in that scene, I won't call it master and slave, but one man is clearly the master of the other. You never see him as excited right. playing this game. In fact, I don't think they yeah. show it much. There's no enthusiasm yeah. on, on right. Eddie's part that you had when he right. plays. Um, and, and it's not just about the, the, the joy of pool. It's about the vitality of the soul again, yeah. right? This guy, Bert, is trying to crush that in Eddie. And what Sarah's trying to do is trying to get the both of them to heal each other's souls, not to actually um, diminish them, right? Mm. Not to shut them out, but just to heal them. Sarah doesn't want her to give up, doesn't want Eddie to give mm-hmm. up pool. She right. says, he says he's, he's, he says he's a self-proclaimed loser after, after yeah. Bert says it. He says, you're not a loser. That's important. Yes. That's important. Bert is reinforcing in Eddie's mind, the idea that Eddie is a loser. And Sarah can... It's like three or four times. Right, and that's right. Bert is a very abusive relationship in that sense, right? Bert is really breaking Eddie down, much in almost a militaristic way. You are nothing. You're a loser without me. Or, I hate to say it, pimp, whore. Yeah, sure, sure, absolutely. But Sarah, a person who sort of thought of herself as a loser, and Eddie is a guy who, at the time he met Sarah, thought of himself as a loser. And here, they're trying... Sarah's whole goal is to basically make the both of them not feel like losers and to get out of the rut that they think they're in. Mm. And Sarah sees this guy who's reinforcing the very thing that she's trying to defeat. She feels like she can't do it without Eddie. She needs him. But this guy, Bert, is working against her interest, which is which is to make them two functioning people in the world with, with healthy personalities. So anyways, after the pool game, the billiards game, um, Sarah's drunk. She's depressed. You know, she feels like she's been defeated by this guy, Bert, in trying to convince Eddie which side to go to. And Bert comes to Sarah's room and seduces her, and they have sex. Okay? He doesn't rape her, you know, because the last movie we did, George C. Scott just raped someone. And the next movie we're going to do, there's an <laughs> attempted rape. There's too much goddamn rape on this podcast all of a sudden and recently. Um, but the point is, they sleep together. It, yeah. they're, they're both uh, willing participants. And in her shame... For sleeping with Bert, she kills herself. And before she kills herself, she writes on the mirror, I believe, lipstick pervert about herself. Yeah. Uh, she said, uh, I think, uh, depraved, perverted, and mm-hmm. beneath, crippled. Yeah. When you first see her walking, okay, mm-hmm. I thought, wow, this is a really good, this is an incredible actress who's showing us how a drunk might walk. Mm-hmm. Then I find out that it's revealed that the character isn't. Walking that way because she's drunk, it's because she had like polio, mm, yeah. which is amazing. That, that, that you know yeah. that, that she's able to, she's kind of kind of um, kind of sly about that. Right. The bottom thing she she writes is she's crippled, mm-hmm. obviously emotionally more than yep. than, than physically. Yeah. And I would dispute one one characteristic. Yeah. Bert never tries to seduce her. I think that when she goes into that room, yeah. she intends to sleep with him, and kill herself. Mm. I really, I that I am convinced of. Interesting. She has decided to end it, and I hate to say this, punish Eddie. 
See, I never saw it that way. It's great because the movie... He goes back into the room. He goes back off off into the room. She enters his room and says, you got a drink. Right. This isn't a Tony Gilroy, Aaron Sorkin, Christopher McQuarrie style screenplay where the language is precise and adult, but also very clear in its intent. Yeah, you're, you're the, the dead reason, right on that. The reason I describe this, a lot this, of this movie as poetry is because poetry can be ambiguous. Hmm. And I always took it that Bert comes in to finish the kill. He's got a wounded animal from before, right? He's got this wound. He's got her on the ropes, right? It's like you shoot a deer, but you miss the head and you get it in the leg. Now, I'm not a hunter and I hate hunting. Um, but the point is he pursues her, in my opinion, or at least the way I read it as the time, because I think what you're saying does make sense. And then he finishes her off. Mm. And in her shame, if anything, see, I never thought of her as punishing Eddie. I thought of it more of just her losing the hope, the hope she'd been holding out on to, which was the idea they can make it out of the pit together. Mm. I, I, I have the exact opposite about her. And, and I'm not trying to suggest that she's okay. malicious because she has, she has been destroyed yeah. By George C. Scott, there's a there's a scene early on yeah. while they're at a, at this party. This yeah. the, the, this rich uh, Louisianian, um, Kentuckian. We keep saying Louisiana. Oh, but he, Kentuckian. But he seems oh, he Louisville, seems, Kentucky. Of course, but he I'm seems sorry. like he's from Louisiana. Yeah. <laughs> there's a party there. Eddie's brought Sarah. Yeah. And um, uh, 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 uh Bert? Scott. Yeah, a uh, uh, Bert whispers something into her ear. Okay. Yep. And she goes crazy. She, it's she, obviously something he crushes so, her. Yes. Yeah. She she can't even. She starts screaming. Then she calls him a bastard. Yeah. Yeah. And 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 he leads her off. Yeah. Paul Newman leads her off and, and takes her upstairs to, to lie down. Yeah. So I can see where you might think you know uh yeah he he just wants to finish her off and that would make sense but that is why this movie is not easy it's a, not an easy yeah. movie it's not you know um. It's not what you expect. The what I, what I took from from this is she has so much self-loathing, and maybe it isn't to punish Eddie, but just to give in to the self-loathing and say, "I'm I'm not I'm not even I'm not good enough for Eddie. I'm not I'm I'm just barely good enough for this guy." She yeah. goes in, asks, "Do you have a drink?" Right. And then and then we find out that uh, tragically afterwards uh, she's killed herself, and it it it, it nearly destroys Eddie. But you're right. The fact that, you know, it's funny, I've seen the movie a million times, and it never dawned on me the fact she does go into his room. Yeah. Which really Without does, enticement, yeah. Yeah, which really does change things. But, you know, like I said, the movie, I won't call the movie vague, but the dialogue in this movie is different. It's like poetry, and it's not taken at face value. So anyways, yeah. after she kills herself... Motives, motives are con- conflicting. Yeah. I, I don't think Bert is as bad as Sarah makes him out to be but he's bad <laughs> and by the way she's not as much a thorn in his side as he thinks because she's willing she like you said she's willing to let eddie play pool yeah you know what i mean well it, she said you're a winner right some men never feel what you feel while you're right. playing she's pool. talking about bert because yeah. bert has no talent he he's a leech he can only <laughs> yeah. suck it out of others that's true um after she kills herself it becomes clear to eddie right away that she slept with bert yeah and eddie attacks bert he physically attacks him, and that's pretty much the end of their business partnership. However, um, Eddie goes to find—this is this is basically the end of the movie. Mm-hmm. Eddie goes to find Minnesota Fats one more time in the club 
that Bert isn't the owner of, but kind of the boss of. He's sort of the head honcho. And this is where you really... So he does his business, yeah. This is also where you figure out kind of the true depths of his sinister um, power. Um, the idea that Bert can actually have people hurt. And I'll explain. Eddie goes, he finds Minnesota Fats one more time. And he says to him, I want to play pool against you one more time. Here's all the money I made playing with Bert, and I want to play you. And Fats looks at Bert for approval. Bert says, sure, go for it. And they play. And Eddie... Not only as he's he's beating Minnesota, but that's not what's important. As he's beating Minnesota, he's talking to Bert. And he's talking about Sarah. And he's mm. talking about what they did to her. And he's and he's basically saying we killed her, the both of yes. us together. That we did this to her. And it's funny, you know, when I was in college, I had to take a class um called Advanced Directing of Actors, where I was in Philly, we got two we had to get two local actors, give them a scene and direct them in front of our class. We got like a week to work on it with the actors. And I chose I chose this scene of oh. these two guys. Um and even in that dialogue, as he's talking to Bert, the the language is not precise. And that's not to say inarticulate, right. it's just not precise. It's like poetry. The way that he describes them both putting the screw in her and twisting it. Yeah. Um, he, he never says anything. You know, the movie, God loved the movie for never telling, right? It's always showing. And even when people are talking, they're showing and not telling, which is extremely hard. A lot of times, for instance, great directors... If they don't want to tell too much, they just won't have the characters talk as much. It's very hard to have a movie that's very heavy in dialogue, but also not telling, not being on the face all the time. And this movie accomplishes that. So as he's beating Minnesota Vats, he's really just, he's coming to the epiphany, basically, the important epiphany in life on what Sarah was trying to draw out of him, what man she wanted him to be, how he failed her, how he feels about that now, and how he's not going to make that mistake again. Meanwhile, he's just, kicking Minnesota Fat's ass because this time he's disciplined. And he's not disciplined because he's diminishing his soul. He's actually disciplined because he finally really kind of understands who he is and what is good about himself in this really agonizing monologue to Bert about how they killed this poor girl. Um, and at the end, after he beats Fats, you know, he's preparing to leave and Bert's like, where do you think you're going? He's like, you know, half that money's mine because you work for me. And Eddie basically challenges him and he says i'm not going to give you this money but it's not because he's greedy it's not because yeah. he wants to keep the money but it's because he knows if he gives bert half the money then he hasn't changed he's still with bert and it's not even the business sense he's got to stand up to bert he's got to show bert you're not my master right and bert says look if you do this you're gonna do it but i gotta let you know you're not going to be in any shape to walk out of here and play pool again, right? He's threatening them. There's there's tough guys in the room. And, you know, Eddie's like, I'll okay, I'll do that. And basically, once Bert sees that Eddie's willing to take a severe beating and possibly a crippling to get away from him, he decides he's not going to have him crippled. He's not going to have him beaten. However, he is going to bar him from ever playing pool <laughs> in any you know, big pool club again, which once again really shows us Bert's reach as sort of an underworld guy. Um, and that's how we set up the even better movie at sequel, The Color of Money. No, I'm just kidding. I hate that movie. I love that movie. And you know what? Don't there tell are me it's so better than this. Scene- no, no. All right. There are some... Am- Newman is phenomenal in that movie. Of course he is. In that movie. He won the Oscar for that one. You could argue he should should have won it for this one. Should have won for this one. That movie is an insult to everything... 
that makes this movie great. That movie is good in its own right. It, it th- I, I saw it without having seen the original Hustler. But while yeah. I was watching this movie, I could see echoes mm-hmm. and contrariness. He becomes... Um, Bert. Bert yeah. to uh, Tom Cruise, but sort of the opposite of Bert. Yeah. Because he wants to nurture um, the Tom Cruise. He's character. actually nurturing a mini Bert. So <laughs> <what> he finds <laughs> out in the color of money. And when and when it works, he's devastated yeah. what yeah. he's created. Yeah. He's he's actually nurturing a monster. <laughs> yes. And not the sort of ideal younger version of himself. Right. Um I still don't like that movie because it's all flash and pizzazz. I I would have liked the movie if the hustler never existed. But because the hustler exists, <laughs> I don't like. I, I love the echoes. I, I think it's a pretty good footnote. It's not, a, not so much as, a, except for Newman's just absolutely cunning performance. Yeah. I think it was, he was at the height of his powers. He once said in an interview in 82 promoting the verdict, he said, um, you know, I was working too hard. Yeah. Sometimes I was just working too hard. And that what's makes him that what's made him such a great actor in his fifties that he knew how to, to to ease back. Well, that's going to come up in our next oh, topic of discussion. But uh, let's get back to the hustle real quick. Okay. Um, any lines for you that stuck out for you? Favorite lines? Well, it's part of what what Bert um, said to uh, Sarah mm-hmm. when when he's putting her in her place. It's yeah. up in the hotel room, and there's a similar scene in The Color of Money, yeah. but it's it coming from the opposite way. He's telling her. All these kind of things. You're, you're here on a rain check, and I know it. What the hell does that mean? You're here on a rain check. Wait, Bert That's says that to Sarah. Yeah, I mean, and he says yeah. some other stuff like, you know, "You're a train wreck." Yeah. You're lucky to be here. Yeah. He says you're on a you're on a rain track. Now that's yeah. a not. He says a, it on the train, right? Hmm? He says it on the train. No, he says it when the, when they finally arrive and they're at the hotel rooms. Okay. Eddie's Eddie's left, and and he, he tries to make peace with yeah. her. She won't have any of it. Yeah. And once she calls him a bastard, he he slaps oh, back I, and I says, "I know what it means." Yeah, I know what it means. Huh. Bert's. I mean, sorry, Eddie's the rain jack. Eddie's. It means yeah. at some point Eddie's going to let her down. That's what he's saying. Like, imagine they they need to do something, right? Uh-huh. She. It's the idea. I'll put it this way: He's telling her that Eddie's going to disappoint her. That 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 he's not going to go the way she wants Eddie to go. It's the idea, like, like you know. Imagine Eddie makes a date with her, right? Uh-huh. But then he's got to break it, take a rain check. It's the idea that Eddie's going to let her down. You're and the rain check, okay? Eddie's no, no. Eddie's that. the rain check, and she knows it. Yeah. That's the idea. It says you're here on a rain check, not that you are a rain check. Mm-hmm. You're here on a rain check. I think what he's saying to her, and this is the beauty of this movie. Yeah, you have to really look for meaning in the dialogue. It's not going to spell it out for you. The way, uh, like you said, uh, Tony Gilroy and, and Aaron Sorkin would. Yeah. yeah. They don't have explicit everything that that character says is the God's honest truth. And yeah. and it's 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 the uh, writer speaking. This is an example of dialogue written by somebody who has to really get into the, the mind of another and character. And it's based on a novel, and I was going to say it's literate, but it might be dialogue lifted entirely from the novel. Um, mm. So if, I Do think, you have a favorite uh, line? Oh, boy. There's a lot. Of, there's a lot of good ones. No, I mean, I think honestly, I'm going to be honest with you. It's it's everything he says to Minnesota Fats in their first encounter, when he just calling him Fat Man. You know what I mean? <laughs> just just calling him Fat Man over and over. Do you think? Now, I don't think he was trying to shake him, shake him or anything. But no, he loves. And him. if he was, he loves. And, him. and if he was, it had absolutely no effect. None. After after you know. Uh, 
uh, you know, Eddie has just totally destroyed Minnesota Fats at, or gotten way ahead of him. I shouldn't yeah. say destroy. Like you said, Minnesota Fats, um, he puts on his vest. He's always wearing a vest, mm-hmm. and he ties it up, and, he, and he's and he's really very proper. He, he's he's very yeah. um, stately, yeah. and he comes yeah. off and finishes off Eddie. Yep. The rematch, I noticed his his uh, his vest had been unbuttoned. It's wide. He's 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 a mess. Eddie has completely beaten him. What's even worse is that the really sad thing about the rematch is you see um, Fats's servitude. Yes. Uh, you see his servitude to Bert. When when, when right. Bert this, threatens yeah, right. Eddie, right. he says, "You better pay him, Eddie." Exactly. Oh, Fats that, is, that, that you feel right. so so bad for Fats him. Fats is a great man in mm. the first encounter. He's a he's a he's a bigger than life figure, right? And in the second encounter, he's diminished. He's just one of Bert's robots. He's just one mm. of Bert's guys. He's not free. And the whole point is Eddie gets free from Bert, but not without a cost because you do learn in the sequel, right? Yes. That if you had any hope that Eddie just said, oh, I'll just go to the West Coast and play pool there. <laughs> nope. That's not what happens. Eddie doesn't play pool for like 30, 40 years or whatever it is. Yeah. Um, bad pitch. Bad pitch. The Days of Wine and Roses meets Kingpin. <laughs> now, I don't know if you've ever seen Kingpin. I know with... King, Kingpin's amazing. Kingpin is Kingpin's a, another masterpiece. Boy, you know what? That's a bad pitch. You know what? There's a lot of similarities between this and Kingpin. I never yeah. realized it. The Woody Harrelson character and the Burt character in their own weird ways. Um, so for me, it's uh, it's Chariots of Fire meets Goodfellas. But come on, I'm doing bad pitch. <laughs> Okay, so any any final? I was trying yeah. to find another uh, pool movie. If yeah. I had bad pitch, there's no other pool movie. There's one other movie, The Baltimore Bullet, which was a mediocre movie in the '80s. There's, there's another one called Pool Hall Junkies, but it's not. No, very, I never heard of it. It's not very good. <laughs> um, all right, so any final thoughts on my favorite movie ever, The Hustler? And by the way, when I say my favorite movie ever, that's not really true. It just it's the most special movie to me. Right. It is the movie that I think you know. Every once in a while, you have a movie, right? And it. And it makes you more self-consciously aware of your love of movies. Anyone who really loves movies knows this. They can pinpoint certain times when a movie hit them so hard, they said to themselves, wow, it's like, I know I like movies so much. You know what I mean? <laughs> Absolutely. The, the first time it ever happened to me was The Usual Suspects. And I was like 12 years old. And at the time, I was like, ah, oh, surprise ending, twist ending. And everything was kind of, <laughs> you know, Tarantino-esque and... I think The Hustler was the first time I saw the real artistry and poetry of film. And, you know, as you get older, your, your tastes in movies always change. But this is one, always, every single time I see it. Nope, that movie, it's, it's exactly as good as I remembered. And as I get older, I like it more. Yeah. So, anyways. Well, I'm glad I, I'm glad I saw it. I, I, I don't know why I never wanted to see it. I thought it was going to be dreary and a, and, and a bummer. And, and there are, there are it's, not a, it's not an up movie. But I'm glad I saw it. And by the way, for me, it is the Paul Newman role. Mm-hmm. To me, if you can only name one Paul Newman character, it has to be Fast Eddie. And I would actually, I say, well, I, I yeah, put that. Now I'll debate you on that. <laughs> it better not be. You're not about to say HUD, which is our second movie. You're not <laughs> going to say HUD is the, the name next to the tombstone, is it? Look, it's, it's, it's a great way of transitioning mm-hmm. over yeah. to, to, to HUD. Yeah. I can't stand when people call actors iconic, especially great actors. Great actors are not iconic. Paul Newman not iconic. Sure. Lawrence Olivier, not iconic. You want to know why? Because actors. they can do more than yeah. one thing. I, when, if you're iconic, you represent one thing. But there has to be the iconic role. Like for Brando, mm. it's either Terry Malloy or it's Don Corleone. You can't name another. 
Yes, you can. No, you can't name that guy from Streetcar. You can't do it. Why? Because it's not him. That's absolutely... It's not him. What are you talking about? It may be for your theater folk, but... <laughs> what? Stanley Kowalski. Stanley No, it's not Stanley. It's not Stanley. Of course it is. He, 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 no. The vast he majority... He changed the country. He 90, changed movie making 90% with that. of people who like Marlon Brando uh-huh. aren't going to name that one. They're probably going to name Don Corleone. But it's not going to be. It's not going to be Stanley Kowalski. Well, if you mean by iconic, and and you have to acknowledge iconic meaning popular, the sense in in you know uh, the zeitgeist, the, the the popular vote. You're right. You, most actor, people aren't. Actor dies. But, actor dies. Uh-huh. It's the Oscars. They're giving him his own in memoriam. His right. own one. What is the last character they show before they show his 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 face with the you know like with the right. with the the years of birth and death on him. <laughs> All right. Okay. So for for Brando, it's either Don Corleone or it's Terry Malloy. They're not going to put Stanley Kowalski last, right? So for 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 Paul Newman, mm. I argue it has to be Fast Eddie. It has to be. Who else can it be? It could be HUD. No, that's yes. crazy talk. Anyway, <laughs> it would be Cool Hand Luke before HUD, and I don't even like Cool Hand Luke. Anyway, that's that's the craziest thing you've ever said. I don't. I don't think that's so. like saying. Ugh, I try to think of something like that's like saying Tom, I'd like to, I'd like that's like saying Tom Cruise. You uh-huh. know what's gonna be for him? The guy from Born on the Fourth of July. Nobody's saying that. He might want to say that. No, <laughs> um, HUD. HUD was a huge. Well, I think it was a huge um, popular success in its day. It's only two years, and I can get into this if you want um, for the stats. Yeah. But I'll let you. Uh, no, please. Uh, let, let's. All right. HUD is a movie. People are in it. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, <laughs> Let's let's go with the stats of HUD before we get into the plot of HUD. Okay. A little shorter. It's yeah. only an hour and 52 minutes. It was released um, in May 29th, 1963 by Paramount. It was directed by Martin Ritt, a very sensitive director. He directed uh, Norma Ray. He directed a couple of... Uh, you talk about... You talk about a, uh, a, a hidden gem, The Outrage. Have you ever heard of The Outrage? Never heard no. of it. But it's, it it it, um, it was a remake of Roshaman. Oh, you know, uh, and it's one of those movies it had a huge star. I think it also had Gene Simmons and um, I, I forget from the Kiss. Other... Uh, no, the actress Gene Simmons. Who? Gene Gene. Simmons. The workout guy. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm dead Stop. serious. I don't know who this actor is or actors. Guys and dolls. Guys and guys and dolls. Um, Elmer Gantry. Yeah. Let me tell you something. On the list of Gene Simmons, she is she's coming in third. She's coming in third. <laughs> she is absolutely uh, beautiful and a phenomenal British actress. Um, he um, he made Hombre with with uh, Paul Newman. Not not one of his better ones. And he made this wonderful romantic comedy in the in the eighties called uh, Murphy's Romance. Okay. Really good movie with uh, James Garner and and uh, Sally Field. Um, it was adapted by um, a pair of screenwriters from a, a novel by Larry McMurtry. Okay, and we've had we've talked about Larry McMurtry uh, one other time. Fantastic writer. He, he tragically just passed away um, uh, about two years ago. It was nominated for seven Oscars. It was nominated for everything except Best Picture. It was nominated for Best Director, Best Screenplay, Best Actor, Actress, Supporting Actor, but no Best Picture. 
I, I, I don't I don't understand. And Paul Newman lost to Sidney Portier in this in Portier's historic win for Lilies of the Field, and that's a cute, charming movie. There's no way you can make the case that Portier was better than uh, the, the only thing this makes the case for Steve, sorry to interrupt you, uh-huh. is that the Oscars have never been any indication <laughs> of anything Quality. other than what are the movies that everybody can con- on consensus stomach the most <laughs> like really like difficult challenging movies right just don't make it there which these two are right absolutely. i don't know if you feel the way about Hub, i absolutely I, feel yeah, that way. i think yeah. it's a very challenging movie um one other thing did you notice the musical score of this movie no because there was none there almost was none at the very beginning at the very end there's this like Tex-Mex kind of um, yeah. lonely guitar, and it was written by Elmer Bernstein. Okay. Elmer Bernstein, one of the most legendary. He wrote dun 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 dun, dun uh, for, for um yeah. uh you know uh, uh what, is, what that? is it the Magnificent Seven? There it is. But he also he wrote he he kept writing. He wrote for To Killing the Mockingbird, To Kill a Mockingbird. He he wrote the score for Trading Places. Wrote the score for Ghostbusters. <laughs> this guy did everything. He is awesome. There is a lot of talent behind this movie. I, and I wanted to mention. I normally, almost on principle, don't watch movies without scores, but this one, it didn't bother me. I think that scores in movies are essential. I mean, they are almost as important as the camera, you find out, because when you usually don't have a score, it is so hard to get through most movies without a score. And yet, one of your favorite movies is a movie without a score, Network. No, Network's not one of my favorite movies. Oh, I thought you. Oh, I thought you. No, liked it. I. So Sidney Lumet is my favorite director. Uh-huh. I thought you loved. That I one. don't even rank Network in the top ten of his movies. Okay. No, no, definitely not. I like Network. When I think, I love Sidney Lumet. We've talked. Sorry, we're getting yeah. tangent here. I love Sidney Lumet. He is comfort food for me. He is like if McDonald's was good for you, right? Like. <laughs> But of all his movies, that's not the one I go back to, and I watch okay. him all the time. Fair but anyways, continue. there aren't that many. Um, there aren't that many movies that don't have scores. Not big yeah. popular movies. It's kind For of good weird. reason. Yeah, I, I mentioned uh, James uh, uh, James Wong Howe, who was one of the first minorities to win. Uh, you know, a, a major Oscar. He was a legendary um, cinematographer. Hmm. He, he did all. He, he all, goes all the way back to the Thin Man. The Rose Tattoo, The Old Man in the Sea, that you yeah. know, that one with Spencer Tracy, you know, he's a phenomenal cinematographer. I'm glad and, that back then, working cinematographers and directors didn't have to be white people playing minorities. Because they didn't, you know what I mean? <laughs> like, the idea, like, you know, like, like West Side Story, they were all Greeks, uh-huh. right, playing Hispanics. You know, I'm just glad that, I'm just glad that an actual, uh, I'm assuming he was Asian, Asian yeah. cinematographer he was, was played born in China, by, but came over here. A Chinese cinematographer uh-huh. was played by was was he played himself. Yes. You know, I'm just glad yeah. it wasn't some white guy. <laughs> you know, but but he he may have yeah. Oh, Mickey like Mickey Rooney in in uh, oh, Breakfast of Fifty yeah. a, a travesty Jesus. of a yeah. Performance. But he he was he's he would probably be on the Mount Rushmore of movies made before you know 1970 as far as cinematographers yeah. uh, go. Anyways, any other stats? No, that's it. All right, I'm gonna try and summarize this one quick. There's a cattle ranch in Texas. It's owned by an old man. Uh, what's his name? Melvin Douglas. Melvin Douglas. What's the character's name, though? Oh, um, geez. Someone I, with an Homer? A? Homer? Is it Homer? Homer, thank you. It's or Homer. Paul Newman kept, keeps referring to him as Homer. I thought that was his know. name. Okay. Anyway, might. so there's a cattle ranch in Texas owned by this man named Homer, a principled old man, a, a relic of another time, or maybe a, a fading time. 
he has a son, played Paul New- Paul Newman, whose name is Hud, which I have to be, which I have to assume is a short for Hudson, because otherwise, what the <laughs> hell? Who names our kid Hud? All right, um, and Hud is the opposite. Hud is an unprincipled, selfish rogue. Um, I, I can't, you know, I, I can't think of another way to to describe him. Meanwhile, living at this ranch is Hud's nephew, the son of his dead brother, um, young kid. Uh, I forget the kid's name, but I'm terrible with names. Lonnie, Lonnie thank you. This, oh, yeah. This kid, Lonnie. It's played by... Um, uh, is this someone who ever worked again? Brandon DeWall. Brandon DeWall. Duh, apparently. Yeah. He was the kid in Shane. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's... The little kid in Shane. No, stop, stop, Steve. Yes. I'm not kidding. At one point in the movie, uh-huh. I was like, I'm so sick of this Shane act. <laughs> like, <laughs> that's, that's funny. so funny. Like, I literally thought... Shane, actually, I love this movie, by the way. So when I said I'm sick of the Shane act, I was just kind of like, all right, wide-eyed Shane kid. Like, the way he was looking at Newman. That's funny. Yeah, literally, is what I thought. Um, anyway, so he's he is this sort of good-natured, impressionable young teenager who is the son of Newman's dead brother and Homer's dead son. So he's the grandson of Homer. And then there's a cook that they employ, this woman. Now, I love this actress because she is in one of my favorite movies of all time, which is A Face in the Crowd. Okay. She's the main character of A Face in the Crowd. She's the producer, the radio producer, who discovers... Is it not Slim Pickens? It's a... Andy yeah, but what is Andy Griffith's name in it? It's not... Lonesome Roads. Lonesome... I keep wanting to say oh. Slim Pickens, but Lonesome Roads. Lonesome Roads. Um, wonderful actress. And here's what I want to say about this movie. So, all right, sorry. So, here's the, the plot of the movie. It's real simple. Did you name the actress Patricia Neal. Yeah, Patricia Neal. Thank yeah. you. Um, here's what I want to say about the movie. Real simple plot. We start off learning that this guy, Homer, he's got, he brought cattle from Mexico, and he finds out that one of his cattle might have um, foot and mouth disease. And foot and mouth disease is a very serious... Hoof and mouth. <laughs> hoof and mouth, sorry. <laughs> Technically. You know what's funny? I have two kids and uh-huh. they often get this thing called hand, foot, and mouth disease. It's Yuck. like a virus amongst children, so that's why it's in my, <laughs> oh my mind. Um, anyways, so it's called, what, hoof and mouth disease? Yeah. Well, a hoof's a foot, Steve. You didn't have to embarrass <laughs> didn't me. Mean to, didn't you mean to be... embarrass me in front of everyone. Ho- you knew I meant... They're scratching their heads. What? You... How does a cow have a foot? It's a foot. <laughs> all right, so listen. Okay. All right, so he finds out um, that one of his cows is sick, might have foot, uh, hoof and mouth disease, calls this sort of like government dude who's got to test the cow, and the idea is that basically if this cow has hoof and mouth disease then they have to kill all the cows and they can't sell any of them. And and, and basically, the farm will be ruined. The ranch, I guess it's not a farm, it's a ranch. Mm-hmm. He'll be, they'll, they'll be economically devastated. But they, but they cannot sell diseased cow because these are cows for slaughter and they can't sell them. Meanwhile, HUD is trying to convince his dad to sell the cattle before anyone finds out, which is deeply immoral. And this is sort of the center of the conflict. But what the movie's really about God, I've been saying soul a lot today, but these are movies about souls, is the soul of Lonnie. Because Lonnie admires both his grandfather and his uncle, even though they are two very different people. And while Hud doesn't take much interest in Lonnie, Homer sees that Lonnie's interest in Hud could be very destructive to Lonnie. And let's make no bones about it, Homer is extremely disappointed in HUD. <laughs> extremely disappointed in him. And verbalizes it often and in very hurtful ways that are also very honest and true. Um, all right, so that's the plot of the movie. Oh, oh by the way, sorry, one more thing. HUD, what's uh, what's the woman's name? Uh, the Alma. actress. Oh, Patricia Neal playing Alma. Alma. 
Pud is also trying to seduce Alma, and Alma, God, I mean, there's there, there's 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 many great characters in this film, but this film is a competition between Alma and Homer, quite frankly, and they both won Academy Awards, by the way, and deservingly so. Alma, the thing I love so much about this woman, Patricia Neal, the thing I love about I love about her so much. Just from the two movies I've seen her in, although she's famous for three. What's the third one? The Fountainhead. No, not that one. That's not what I'm thinking of. But that proves what a great actress she is, because she is so much different. Are you thinking about the subject was Roses? No, no. There's another movie besides A Face in the Crowd and HUD that she is famous for. Oh, uh, oh, the, the science fiction movie. Yes, the day the Earth stood still. But you, know, you all, talk about well, that's yes. a, that's a wildly diverse. Uh, but you know resume. what? But all three of those roles have one thing in common. She plays a modern woman. She is so good at playing a modern woman during that time. A sharp woman. A woman with intellect and bite to her, right? She, this is not some passive daisy. This is, and, and she does this in every one of those roles, right? Even, even at David Ursa Still, she's a government bureaucrat. That's pretty modern. She's a working woman, right? <laughs> you know, and, but the point is, she plays this role. I mean, this role, this movie, here's what I wanted to say earlier. Paul Newman is outshined in this movie. There's no way around it. He is outshined in this movie by the guy who plays Homer and Patricia Neal. So much so that I'm not sure Paul Newman was right for this role. This is my only criticism of this movie because I actually really, really like this movie quite a lot. But I'll say one thing. I remember watching um, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, Mm -hmm. and I don't like Leonardo DiCaprio that much to begin with. But his southern accent borderline ruined that movie. And just like Marlon Brando, I don't think that Paul Newman can pull off a southern accent. And he was wise not to do it in a Butch casting the Sundance Kid. At least not to my memory does he do it. Hmm. So anyways, that's my thought. My thought is that he kind of gets out sh- outshone in this movie. It, um, for, 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 for superb, brilliant acting authentic acting patricia neal gives one of the finest best actress uh oscars uh they did themselves proud yeah, yeah. uh that they could have usually glossed over her but yeah they, they did themselves really proud paul newman's performance is one of the most legendary performances of all time it's one of the you think i think it's one of the great huge performances right up there with james cagney in white heat hmm. and denzel washington in training day and jack nicholson in um one flew of the cuckoo's nest well, i put it almost <laughs> let me up, ask up you there. a question in what order of paul newman movies did you see this one um oh i i couldn't say Mi- middle I, middle I, period the first time i saw For it was you like 20 years ago yeah yeah the point is that you know this is the movie. You want to talk about unlikable. This mm-hmm. is a truly reprehensible and despicable character who never once in the movie, except for maybe like one small moment, shows any remorse or willingness to change the path that they're on. This character, in my opinion at least, is a true villain, and most of the analysis of this movie suggests the same. Um, this guy is out to destroy his father. Um, his father's a deeply principled man, and he's, he's a man of another era. Um, and, you know, when he finds out that his dad isn't going to sell the cattle and is willing to let the place go, you know, bankrupt, so to speak, he then starts talking to a lawyer, and he's going to try and basically declare his, his dad, um, you know, senile and incompetent and just sort of take control over the property. And then in another truly heinous act, after his dad... Uh, basically after his dad sort of 
lectures him in front of Lonnie because uh, Paul Newman took Lonnie out drinking one night and and Homer's afraid that Lonnie is going to go down the same moral road as HUD. After basically um, Homer says to HUD, he says, you know, I have... He's, what does he say to him? He basically says, you know, you're selfish, you're... Well, well HUD thinks that the reason his father hates him yep. is because he got drunk with his older brother, mm-hmm. who has, is Lonnie's father, yep. and kills him in a car crash. That's right. And then, mm-hmm. to everybody's surprise, yep. uh, the father says, no, that's not why. Yeah. He, he says, said, I was sick of you, like, well before Well, but that's one, of the, that's one yeah. of the great lines, I was sick of you well before. But and then, remember, he's only, he was only 17 when this happened. Right. 17 or 18. Right. But then not only that, <laughs> then he, he, he basically lists everything that's wrong with HUD, yeah. and he says something basically to the effect of, and that's no type of man to live with, right? Yeah. That, that's basically what he says. Yeah, I, I think it's some, somewhere around that line. He goes, that's no type of man to live with, the type mm-hmm. of man that you are, because HUD lives in the house. Mm-hmm. He lives on the ranch. So after really basically hearing what he interprets his father saying, I don't love you, because at one point he does say to his dad, my mother loved me and she's dead, right? And his dad That's never, his answer to the, this long yeah. line of, yeah. of, of hatred. Right. <laughs> so then he goes to Patricia Neal's room, and he tries to rape her. Mm-hmm. It's the one time that HUD, you know, that raw nerve is exposed. Mm-hmm. He can, he can, he can deflect all of the criticisms. Yeah, he can brush it off. Yeah, it's the only time right. he can't. And he tries, and he tries to rape this woman. Mm-hmm. And and thank God, this scene. isn't not a movie like The Hospital where we have to mm-hmm. like make sense of the contradictions in the character. No, he does a despicable thing because he's a despicable person, and she reads it as despicable. But at the same time, her character is so nuanced, right? So after he tries to rape her, she says, I'm out of here, which is, you know, logical thing to do. She says, I'm going to get a bus ticket and get out of here. And he actually finds her at the bus stop she's at waiting to to leave the area to do God knows what. And he's, you know, he's sort of talking about how, you know. What you're describing is, I think, arguably the best scene of the movie. Absolutely. It's phenomenal. Because... You know, he, he's he's trying to apologize almost half-heartedly um, to her. He's like, you know, I you know I didn't mean to get rough with you. I don't normally have to get rough with my don't women. Norm- <laughs> he even interjects egotism even in this sense. I usually don't have to. And, you know. and instead of sort of screaming at him or yelling at him, she, she kind of deflects it. And, and, and almost, it's almost a way of dignity. She's like, you know, we probably would have slept together. Mm-hmm. And he went and tried to rape me. Like, you know, it's... It's a Let very, me see if I can recall because I've seen this twice in the last uh, yeah. forty-eight hours. Well, she, she says, says like it would like, have happened. I was like, I saw it you would have happened and, with uh, without. Yeah. It, it would have probably would have been. You said uh, she said, you know, the funny thing is, yeah. this probably would have happened without the rough housing. Yeah, or you something know, like you that. You look great in a without wearing a shirt and you're walking around. Yeah. and more than one time I put my uh, my dish towel down, and then he says, you should have spoken up, and she turns. You know, then she knows this. Yeah, he's like he, he's he's left. He, he's he's come down to even lower depths. Right. So, and not only that, I think you know when I was watching the scene, I was sort of like watching it carefully. Is she excusing him? But she's not at all. In fact, the way I kind of see it, she's keeping her dignity. She's a sharp. Yeah. She's a sharp lady. She's a sharp cat. Right. She's got she's got more wit than any of them, including HUD. And he's a pretty witty character. And in my opinion, she's not letting him see her broken. Yes. Because one, when he tries to rape her, she is broken right after that. You know, young Lonnie, who actually is the one that got HUD off of her, tries to comfort her, and she's pretty destroyed. She turns her face yeah. away from Lonnie yeah. and hides it in a curtain, which yeah. is, there's no other scene in this whole movie right. where she's like that. She's free and open with the guys, yeah. teases them. Right. 
But then after that, she gets her composure back. Yes. She's saying, I'm not going to let you see me wounded. Yeah. You know, I'm going to show you that, oh, you tried to rape me, so what? Like, like br- I brushed it off. You're not so tough. Mm-hmm. And obviously, that's not the case, right? But I, I don't see it in any way as her excusing him at all. A- absolutely yeah. not. I think, he, I think th- maybe there's a part it's, of her. It's wonderful writing to create a complex character yeah. who doesn't react the way that many audiences, especially of today, would demand of her. And it's not and it's not in the contradictory way that the hospital did it, which is actually like this makes <laughs> That's no sense. It's a little sense. too far in the other, it was, other direction. It was not even too far, but it was just it was just not human. You right. know what I mean? Right. Uh, well we, we debated whether yeah. he actually was a rape or not. Yeah. But um here Paul Newman walks across, um, you know, she's at the bus station. He, he walks across. You don't even see her at first, yeah. but you know who, she's, who, who he's looking at. And when, when the movie, when, when the, the camera glides around and you see her, you think you're anticipating she's stiff yeah. or glaring at her. She's not. She, she is relaxed like she was throughout yeah. the entire movie except for that horrible so, scene. So the whole movie I'm watching and thinking to myself, man, they're really shooting the hell out of this movie. Yes. And it's actually in that scene because you know she's at the bus stop and it says bus stop from Paul Newman's actually walking out of the attorney's office where he's going to screw his dad, yeah. right? <laughs> and the camera's following him from behind and he comes perpendicular to a wall. And you know she's on the other side of it, yeah. like you said. But the, for the first 15 seconds he's talking to her, you only see him. And the camera's... So you don't know how she's yeah. reacting. That's you right. You can think how she's right. reacting. That's right. But the, mo- but the camera masterful. glides over. It's, it's brilliant. It's, it's masterful. And she is... She, she's chalked up what he did the night before yeah. to one of life's, you know... Right. And uh, it's, bit, it's not uh, the only masterful bit of direction in this movie because the news comes back that the cow indeed has hoof and mouth disease mm-hmm. and they have to slaughter all the cattle. And it cuts basically, you know, this movie takes place in, on the open range, so to speak, right? Uh, Homer's property, which is Where just... do they ever find enough grass for them to graze? I have no yeah, idea. Yeah. In fact, you don't see any grass, actually. You never <laughs> no. see any grass on his, on his land. Completely Maybe it's a arid. mistake. But uh, anyway, so the point is, um, it cuts and you see these two enormous bulldozers, right? Uh, is that what they are? They're bulldozers. Yeah. Like, you know, they get yeah. the big shovels. And then... You see the cattle being herded into this enormous mass grave that they've mm-hmm. dug for them. And men all on the side in these unbelievably gorgeous and terrifying wide shots of men with the rifles getting ready to shoot these animals. You know, honestly, maybe it's because I'm Jewish, but I just had like Holocaust visions. I was like, this just reminds me of like Nazis shooting Jews in mass graves at the end of the war. This is an incredibly brutal scene. Yeah. Um, it was just so interesting. It was so masterfully directed, that scene. And then at one point, I'm sorry, but the camera mm-hmm. glides across the men as there must be like, Eight nine men just reloading their rifles and just shooting these these cattle in the you know in the giant pit and you see the cattle pit. I mean, it's just it's an unbelievably heart wrenching scene. Yeah, you you can definitely see why um, this movie was nominated for best director because that that scene was so intense. I didn't even want to watch it. The second time I watched yeah. it, I fast forwarded through that scene. I didn't really I didn't want to really want to go over it again. But you there's the sound of the gunfires as yeah. they slowly taper off and each one seems to count more yeah you know when they're down to the last few it's yeah you're right this is brilliantly directed how it didn't get nominated for best picture uh, especially in such a weak year because I, it was I, difficult it's a difficult yeah. movie in which really bad things happen but even... they acknowledged every other aspect how come they just couldn't take that next leap i, I do want to say yeah. one thing about paul newman's please 
a point of contention, the one question I would want to ask yeah. you is, would Marlon Brando have improved if he had been cast in either movie? I think you probably would say yes for HUD. I don't know if you'd say yes for... Um, well, you asked me this when you first watched The Hustler. Right. We were talking about new Brando, and, and you said, my opinion, if the age matched up, if Brando wasn't too old in, mm-hmm. in, um, in Hustler, which he might have been too old, I'm not sure, but let's say it's young Brando. I think young Brando does the role as well as Newman in mm-hmm. Hustler. Um, I've seen Brando. With I a, agree. I've seen Brando with a Southern accent, uh-huh. and I was not impressed. I think the essence of Brando speaks much better to HUD than Newman does. I think Brando can play that type of character much better than Newman. Quite here's frankly. why I disagree, and okay. why I think that his performance kind of transcends the movie because it, it it's so big it caught audiences incredibly they they had seen you know the dirty you know the kind of an underhanded dealer like in in William Holden in Stalag 17 mm-hmm. which was a I love Stalag 17 which we're, was we're a have slap to, in the done face that yet? no no we're going to have to cuz it's one of my favorite mm-hmm. movies ever it's a slap it was a slap in the face to the conventional mm-hmm. movie hero right yeah, right this movie takes that Bill Holden character who really wasn't a profoundly immoral man he was just looking out for himself takes it a notch above Paul Newman deliberately played this as a villain, and he, yeah. he himself was shocked that it was misunderstood because the, yeah. the, the movie going public kind of liked the guy. So there's a theory. Liked him too much. There's I a... think that speaks volumes to his acting. Yep. Somebody once said, you know, if a, mat, if, if a huge hit yeah. is also, if a brilliant movie is also a success, yeah. it's been misunderstood. I think this is a prime example of that. But there's also, um, there's also a theory that the counterculture um movement of the 60s misinterpreted his character as the free-spirited son revolting against the conservative father and that's a huge diluted misinterpretation of what is happening here this movie is casting a very weary eye on the younger generation it's saying there's something missing it doesn't leave you hopeless like like network leaves you hopeless uh because you know uh uh lonnie he he appears to have adopted uh, more of his grandfather than of Hud, right? Uh, but there's there's no question. This movie comes down on the side of we gotta we gotta watch out for our for this next generation. We're give, we're we're raising some psychotics. We're we're raising wolves. Yeah. So yeah. this is this is what I want to get to because we we praised um, God. I'm so bad with names. What's the female character's name? Alma. Alma. We yeah. praised her character, her performance, amazing performance. But for me. The Homer character is wonderful because you so rarely see that character today, which is a man of integrity, a man of virtue, and a man um, who knows the times are changing on him. This is a guy, so there's there's some really important scenes in this movie. Um, There's a few times, you know, the movie is kind of telly, especially when Homer is telling Hud what he doesn't like about him, which is essentially saying what he thinks men should be like. Mm. But my, my favorite, you know, most of my favorite lines in the movie are from Homer. And, you know, one of them is him basically when they decide they're going to kill the cattle, um, Hud is trying to convince Homer to sell the land for oil. And Homer's explaining why he won't do it. That's right. And, and he's saying, startling. Yeah. And, and he's saying, you know, what would he do with an oil derrick in his, on his land? He can't rope it. He can't chase it. He can't breed it. You know, he, he's like, he says something to the 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 uh, the uh, the idea of there there ain't there ain't nothing doing for it. The idea mm-hmm. that I do nothing for it, it just does itself. I'm mm-hmm. not working for it. And then 
HUD says, well, it makes money. And he says, <laughs> I don't want that kind of money. This is really important because you talk about the younger generation, but a lot of the literature in this movie, and you may not like it, I don't see the movie as a wholesale indictment of capitalism, but it is actually saying the idea of a dollar's a, do, the, the, a dollar's profit for the sake of a dollar's profit is not good enough, right? The, the pursuit of money beyond what are we doing for it has, you know, it's not valuable to society, right? It's one thing to do something valuable for society and to make money from it, but the pursuit of money just for itself is not a valuable act for society. And one of the things Homer's always going on about is you have to care about people. You have to take responsibility for your neighbor. I'm not going to sell diseased cattle because other people can get sick from it. I don't, you know, I want to do things for the world. I want to do things that have value for the world. And if I make money from it, well, then good. And you get the sense that he does cattle not because he likes making money, but because he likes cattle. He likes feeding people. He likes breeding cattle. He likes his place in society and his value as a cattle person. But if he just puts oil derricks in his land, then he himself no longer has value. It's just the land. Yeah, I, I, could, I could see somebody like me yeah. Uh, yeah. feeling that— uh, I, I did have a little little pinch, like you know, you're getting right. a little sentimental. Uh, ranch work is extremely hard work, right. especially if you're but not the boss. About especially it. if you're not the boss, yeah, right? You right. know, <laughs> yeah. when somebody else is doing yeah. the really hard work, I don't doubt that this character, yeah. you know, put put in his time. It's there, a small no ranch. About it's that. not like a mechanized mega ranch, right? This right, is right. he's got like thirty cows, but he's 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 doing okay. He's got thirty cows and two paid workers, right? Yeah, oh, who, who he's got to lay off. Plus, plus his kin, who he gets uh, labor for free. But it, it, it's funny that. You kind of mentioned this. Yeah. At least in my favorite line in the movie. Not one of my favorite lines. And this kind of should have warned the movie-going audience, the movie-going audience, that HUD is not somebody to be revered. Mm-hmm. He, he's trying to convince Lon, HUD is not the way to go. And he says, quote, little by little, mm-hmm. the look of the country changes by the men we admire. Steve, that's my favorite line of the movie. Fantastic that, that, line. That was going to be my favorite line yeah. of the movie. Little by little... Say it again. Little by little, the look of a country changes by the men we admire. Now, I'll put it this way to you. Whether you fall liberal or you fall conservative, you probably I'm sure you that. would take that line and say, that's exactly right for today. <laughs> Do you see yeah, what I mean? Absolutely. Because that's how I took it. I said, that's exactly right for today. <laughs> and the thing I love about the Homer character is that we're so obsessed with the antihero now, right? We're so obsessed with these guys We've lost the ability to write men like Homer. Even, you know, what's really funny is that um, No Country for Old Men, in many ways, is mocking Homer. I can't believe you mentioned it. I was just thinking about the Tommy Lee character, Tommy Lee Jones character, who is the closest thing to to Homer's character. But he's kind of a befuddled fool in some ways, and Homer isn't. Homer Mm. sees clearly. Tommy Lee Jones's character admits he doesn't see clearly. Yeah, he's kind of defeated. He's yeah, de- Not as he's defeated, he's confused. Mm-hmm. He's like, I thought it was one way, it's another way, and I don't really understand what's happening around me. Mm-hmm. He's kind of like, you know, I'm the character in the movie who should be solving the crime, but at the same time, I'm realizing there's a, this, like, there's a type of violence and gangland brutality that's just well beyond my understanding, and I'm not going to solve this crime. I'm out of my depth. But the Homer character is not out of his depth mentally. He mm. understands exactly what's happening and where things are going. He's he's just like um, 
man, I keep forgetting her name. Oh, Alma. He's just like, I keep want to say Arlen for some reason. He's just. Alma say, yeah. sees things clearly and yeah. nobody really pulls the wool over her eyes. Right. And what's funny is they all think they see things clearly. Yeah. Even HUD. HUD thinks he sees things clearly, right? They all have an idea that they see things clearly. And in their own ways, they all do. Because HUD. So I'm. All right. Spoiler territory. Okay, ready? Guys, you got five seconds to turn <laughs> this off, watch the movie. And come back. Come yes. back. Are you ready? <laughs> Five, four, three, two, one. All right. Eventually, Homer dies. After they slaughter um, Homer's cows, he tries to get on his horse. And Homer's, he's he's sick at this point, but doesn't want anyone to know. He's kind of weak. He tries to get on his horse and just, like, survey the land. He wants to just, like, look out on his land. He falls off his horse, injures himself badly, and dies. Um, and at the funeral... Uh, Lonnie has basically come to the conclusion because he knows that that uh, that HUD was trying to screw uh, Homer out of the land. He's come to the conclusion that HUD's no good. He's going to leave the ranch. He's going to go off on his own and do whatever. Right? He's had enough of HUD. HUD um, goes back to the ranch, and this is this is why I was going to bring up the Godfather. It's its own little mini Godfather two moment. He goes <laughs> to an empty house. He closes the door. There's a drawn curtain. He's going to have a drink. And he is the new type of man. He's the new type of man. A, a, a amoral capitalist. I wonder if Coppola uh, was influenced um, by that. So you saw the same, you thought the same thing? With one major difference. What's that? He goes, Lonnie, before you, before you say that, uh, before you do that, he tries to convince Lonnie to stay. Yeah. And he follows him just like Paul Newman followed uh, Tom Cruise trying to get him into the car in a col- yeah. color of money. The same yeah. kind of thing, yeah. only that character is self-aware enough to be embarrassed by it. He's driving in his mangled Cadillac, mm-hmm. okay? Yeah. A little symbolism there. Yeah, right, right. Yeah, <laughs> you know? I saw that too. Yeah. He's, 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 he's driving with his mangled Cadillac. Uh, Lonnie gives him the brush off. And like you said, he gets out of his car, he goes in, gets himself a beer, comes back to the door, but before he does it, he pauses for a second, and then he waves off like, nah. He rationalizes. He, he, yeah, he waves off, nah, they're yeah. not right, I'm yeah, right. That's he right. waves and then closes the door. Michael Corleone has no such compunction, but just for a slight second, right. he thought, is Lonnie on a son? Nah. Well, he just waves yeah, it off okay. and Well, we don't know what Michael Corleone is <laughs> thinking in that chair. Yeah. He's aged, remember, at the end of The Godfather 2, he's aged about 10 years since since killing everybody right since killing his brother his hair is a little grayer and he's sitting in this chair alone time has passed we don't know if he's feeling oh i thought right you're talking not. about the end of the godfather no i'm talking about the end of the godfather too remember it's the because end in the, the end of the godfather like right. hud he closes the door and he's but hud is alone in a house that was once full of people this is the important yes. part and in the godfather too is when corleone is alone in a house yeah. that was once full of people that's why i didn't think of one i thought of two interesting so i was yeah. thinking about about but one the difference because- is you you can only read the expression on Michael Corleone's face at the end of two however you want. Is he yeah. feeling remorse or is he not? But you know with HUD, he's not. No. That being said, I still think of the three main leads, not counting Lonnie, I think Newman is giving the weakest performance. He just is. I just If that is a if that is in fact I, I have to put him above um uh Melvin Douglas, who's no, a fine actor. No. Have you ever seen Ninochka? No, never heard of it. 
He plays a sm- it's it's a lo- it's it's a romantic comedy with Billy Wilder before Weird he name. made huh Weird name it, it, well it's, it's the name of a Soviet um, official who's who's brought to Paris and and uh, to, to retrieve some um, uh, jewelry yeah Melvin Douglas plays a smooth urbane guy <laughs> I mean funny. the absolute opposite of this guy who has a gravelly voice. He he plays the part to perfection. I just don't think there's as much dim, uh, as many dimensions to this role. As, I got I got I got to disagree with you. Two points. One, I don't ever want to see Melvin Douglas do anything ever again. I want him to only be this guy. Please Homer. watch Nanachka. You won't recognize him. It'll be fun because you won't recognize him. The second thing is, as soon as you said that, it called me back to when Melvin Douglas has to kill the two bulls that yeah. he raised. The bulls, I guess, that he uses to breed the cows. Longhorns. The two yeah. longhorns that he raised, and he decides he will kill them himself because he didn't kill the cattle. He just gave the order. He decides his two beloved bulls that he raised, he's going to kill them himself. And then after he kills them, he makes a very interesting acting decision. He tells Lonnie and Hud to bury the bulls, but he doesn't say it in the same way he's delivered almost every line in the movie. He's angry. He's angry. He's angry. And I thought that was so smart of this guy. He's had enough. This whole movie, he's been measured and weary and wise. And this one moment, he's just a pissed off old man. He had to kill his two bulls that he loved. And and that's really important because that's human behavior. That's id. Right? That's That's the super ego. That's the idea. The behavior is more powerful than the desired choice of attitude. So... Instead of him being I'll give this you that. I'll give you that. Yeah. I'll give you that. That you're that right. That was a it choice breaks, of his. It, it almost it doesn't break character. No, but it shows us a side uh, an angry that we haven't seen. He's always yeah. measured. That's right. Everything he says seems right on the button. He can't control himself in that in that moment. It was That's so smart that he didn't try to be wise in that moment. Yeah. That he didn't try to. He could have delivered that that line wise. Like, yeah. time to bury the bodies. Like, right. you know what I mean? Like, I've done the thing I did. Now yeah. we're going to do the next thing you got to do. And instead, he's just angry. He's just, like, he's just, just pure, bury him. He's just pure bitter. Yeah. One other thing about HUD, he's not he's not a typical mustache uh, twirling villain. Uh, there's an accident mm-hmm. at the end of the movie where yeah. they come across, um, you know, Homer's, Homer crawling across the road because he fell off his horse. HUD doesn't try to, to delay an ambulance. He does everything he can to save the old man. He's not that kind of villain. No, he's not, not going to kill yeah, he's, the he's guy. Not a, he's just a rapist, but he's not a murderer. Right, right, right. I mean, it, but I, I did think, I did, you know, if, if, if you wanted to play melodrama, he yeah. would have said, eh, maybe we hold up on the call on the ambulance. No. He knows he has to call the ambulance. And it, it's like a gut thing, and I admire that part. So I have a question. Yes. Could James Dean have played the HUD role, or would he have looked for too much sympathy in the character? Would James Dean search for the too much of a sympathetic angle? Because he doesn't in Giant. I'm not, I'm not qualified to say. You know why? Why? Well, there's only three performances he ever gave, and I only saw two of them. Was one of them Giant? Yeah, it, it was. For it me, was. Giant's the only one I like. Really? Yeah. I, I, I didn't. I wasn't crazy about his performance in Giant. <laughs> it's the only one I enjoy, actually. Yeah, I don't like yeah. him in the others. I don't know. I think... There was I, some... I think Newman, but still, Newman has a towering performance that you know that that influenced a culture. Well, I have a sometimes wrongly. Do you have a problem with Newman doing it without the Southern accent? Newman's from Cleveland, and I know this because mm-hmm. he went to my dad's high school. Yeah. <laughs> Newman is he Jewish? I don't think he he's and, Jewish. He's, but... he's, he's, uh, he's part. He's half Jewish. Yeah, yeah, he's from a Jewish. I remember, I remember that uh, Adam Sandler song. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> 
he's I think he's from Ohio. Yeah, um, uh, he probably grew up there, but he he was born but, in Ohio. Brando was born in Nebraska. These the guys are from is, the mid, mid, Midwest. Would you have had a problem if he did it sans accent, without the accent? Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. I think, think I would have preferred it. I think would have preferred no accent. I really don't. The Brandon like... DeWild character doesn't have much of an accent. Does exactly. He? I don't yeah. like a bad Southern accent. He might. I didn't me. think it was bad. I don't like Cool Hand Luke. Was... You want to know why? I can't get over the can't accent. Can't get over the accent. It just doesn't ring true. I'm forgiving. I'm. I mean. Also, I don't think Cool Hand Luke's very good. I think Cool Hand Luke is the most overrated Paul. Well, actually, no. The Sting is the most overrated Paul Newman movie, and then Cool Hand Luke. There's no question. The Sting is really overrated. Yeah. I would yeah. have to see Paul uh, Cool Hand Luke again. I haven't seen it. In too many years to have an intelligent uh, recollection about it. Anyways, any, any, any final thoughts on HUD? Because we went long today, boy. Oh, sorry. Um, watch these movies. And there are so many other uh, Paul Newman movies. You, you once said uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman has one of the finest yes. filmographies, and he does. Paul Newman's got nothing to be ashamed about with his filmography 100%. And, his, and his range. So n- another question, though, because we're not like totally finished. But um, was, your, what, was your favorite line in the movie the same one as mine? But the men we admire, I, I yeah, I, I like it. But I, I got to give HUD props uh, when when he's when he's yelling at uh, his father and one of the many occasions uh, mm-hmm. he can't stand his, his his righteousness. HUD says, "You take the sinners away from the saints, and you're lucky if you have Abraham Lincoln." <laughs> yep, <laughs> I thought that was funny. Okay, so what's your pitch? Terrible pitch. You know what? I I have Wall Street meets um, the Last Picture Show. But I'd like to substitute when we were talking about the the fight for Lonnie's yeah. soul. Wall Street is that you've yeah. got Martin Sheen and, and Melvin Douglas. But I'd rather do Platoon meets uh, the Last Picture Show. And so you know what's funny, Steve? Same dynamic. Y- you're having the same problem. You have the same problem that I have in two different ways. One, my pitch was Giant meets the Last Picture Show, mm-hmm. and the problem with both those pitches is they're actually good pitches. They're not bad pitches. Yeah, I know. <laughs> They're actually good pitches. They because the whole time I was watching this movie, it reminded me so much of Last Picture Show. You you want a bad pitch? I'll give you a bad pitch. Yeah, please. Brokeback Mountain meets Network. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's better. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> All right. Any final thoughts for today's podcast? I think it was you know I was glad we did it. We did it mainly so we could do the Hustler. But I was actually in many ways I I thought as much as I love the Hustler, I thought HUD. Hud HUD's more, more entertaining. Hud's enter- no, Hud's I think the Hustler's conventionally more entertaining. I think. I think the Hustler's more entertaining, with the ex- with the exception of um, Hud's more entertaining. Sorry, the Hustler's more entertaining, with the exception of the brief period in which they're spending in Sarah's apartment. I didn't think Hud really got going until Lonnie spends the night out with Hud. Really? Yeah, I thought that's when the movie I really got from, going from the start. There's this great early scene, the very first scene we see. Um, uh, Paul Newman, we find out what he's like. Uh, uh, Lonnie comes to to, to, yeah. to get him out of a married woman's house, yeah. and the, the her her husband comes up and he blames his his nephew. Yeah, this guy yeah. could kill this guy. He blames his nephew. Don't yeah. worry, I'll take care of him. Right. I'll, I'll I'll take him to the the woodshed. Yeah. Anyways, <laughs> both both excellent movies yes. from an, from an excellent actor, Steve. A pleasure as always. Until next time. Uh-huh.